Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast Series. This is the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. My job is to find uh, what I call the geniuses, the 0.1% of people in their fields. I've spoken to over 2,000 scientists, clinicians, researchers, etc. And today I have Roy Black. He's an affiliate professor currently uh, with the University of Washington in the chemistry department. Roy has a long career in biotechnology. He built and led R&D programs that identified enzymes required for the release uh, from cells of uh, two central mediators of inflammation, which are pretty popular or you know, have been talked about a lot, which is interleukin 1-beta and tumor necrosis factor alpha. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit today about a little bit different subject, but uh, origin of life and how that, uh, that may have occurred. So Roy, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, why study the origin of life? Is it a fascination for you or you know, how did this come about? Right. It was a bit of an odd migration from uh, the pharmaceutical industry. I've always been curious about how the world got to be the way it is. Uh, and I actually majored in history uh, when I was in college. Uh, but a lot happened before recorded history started. Uh, after college, I did some reading in anthropology. Uh, but eventually I worked my way all the way back to the ultimate question of how life itself began. Uh, then more uh, proximally, uh, I, I read a number of books about it in the mid-2000s while I was still in the pharmaceutical industry. And I was really shocked that there weren't any comprehensive answers. And even the, the partial answers uh, were not compelling. So I started sketching out ideas myself in a notebook and uh, got some schemes that I thought were what were worthwhile. Uh, I did a reality check with a couple of uh, thought leaders in the field, and they were encouraging. So uh, then I, I, before leaving the pharmaceutical industry, I did a sabbatical uh, to kind of check out the field, uh, kind of a reality check, uh, and then left the pharmaceutical industry, and so that was nine years ago. Okay, so um, is there commercial interest in the origin of life, or is this more for, uh, you know, for people's, uh, well, I don't know if you say gratification, but just for, just for knowledge in general? How do you see it? Yeah, I think the, the main benefit of a better understanding of the origin of life is it helps to satisfy our, our curiosity about where we came from. Uh, I think it also, it brings home the, the long, long journey to where we are now, uh, you know, it's a long way from the simple theory I'll sketch out when, uh, to cells that extract energy from the environment to multicellular organisms, I think. So uh, to me, understanding how all this started from uh, a very simple beginning uh, deepens our appreciation for life as we know it and, and for being here. Those are my motivations and, and what I see to pay off. Well, one other point is that it, it 
will help to answer whether there's, or at least the probability of, of life existing elsewhere in the universe. Uh, mm. and, uh, you know, whether that has any other than, than curiosity, payoffs, uh, is up to each individual. But I, I yeah, think what are your thoughts there for a start? Um, do you think that uh, it's possible, probable, or there must be life in other parts of the universe? Yeah, well, as, as I'll, we'll get to in more detail, I think our, our results increase the probability somewhat. They show that the bringing the pieces of a cell together uh, is is not just a, a rare random event, but actually occurs through a natural affinity uh, among the, the molecules involved. So in that sense, I I would say finding life elsewhere more probable, but still that long road that I alluded to a few minutes ago, uh, that was a, a, a three billion year uh, road. We think the first cells uh, arose probably about three and a half billion. So uh, even if, if simple cells uh, uh, do exist elsewhere, uh, I'm not confident that they followed that, that long road uh, complex thinking organism. So you think it, is it likely that there is life on other planets, but it's not at an advanced stage? Or what, what is your thought there? I, I'm frankly skeptical. I think you you need the right ingredients, uh, you know, and and in the, the right conditions, uh, which again we can talk. We'll talk about a bit more uh, further on. Uh, you know, the answer to that uh, that you frequently hear is yes, but there are billions and billions and billions of, of planets out there. Uh, so even if the the proper con- conditions are rare. Uh, they're out there, but I, I'm, I'm skeptical that it's, uh, okay. Okay. So, uh, what, all right, well, you know, for the origin of life here on earth, uh, now with, in, in summation, what do you currently believe, uh, happened? How do you think it happened? Okay. Well, our scheme in a nutshell is, uh, we start with the question of what is life. Okay. And in our view, uh, all life on Earth is composed of cells, and cells are fluid-filled sacs that can grow and divide, uh, and that contain two additional major components, RNA and protein. And just two additional bits of background for those not up on their biology, uh, the RNA and protein each are uh, composed of subunits or what we call building blocks strung together uh, like like beads on a string. So that's our view. Life is composed of cells. Cells uh, consist of these fluid-filled sacs containing RNA and protein. So the problem, as we see it, is how did cells arise on the ancient Earth? And we think there are two major problems. Uh, first, how did the pieces I just described get together? And then second, how did the initial aggregates persist in the face of a challenging environment? So briefly, our answer to the first problem is that there were molecules on the early earth that formed sacs spontaneously. That's been established. And that the building blocks of protein and RNA 
stuck to the sax. That's the simple heart of our concept. So once all the pieces were brought together in this way, the reactions between the protein building and the RNA building block could have proceeded to yield RNA uh, and protein. So well, what, what about yeah. here? So this, this kind of event, I mean, it, it seems unlikely if it happened once, that would be enough for it to continue. So you know, my guess is that it would have, if this is what happened, it would have happened millions, billions, maybe trillions of times. But how do you go from RNA and protein sticking to, you know, the inside of a lipid vesicle, let's say, to this entity now replicating itself? How would it, how would there be any knowledge or desire right. for something to replicate itself? Right. So there is a second component to uh, our, our scheme. And that is that these initial aggregates, uh, as I said, would have been unstable uh, in the face of environmental challenges. Uh, we know that the, the kinds of, uh, of vesicle or, or sac uh, forming uh, molecules that were present on the early Earth form uh, relatively unstable uh, sacs. So, for example, uh, they're destabilized uh, by high concentrations of salt. So, our answer to this second problem is that the protein and RNA building blocks that stuck uh, stabilized the primitive sacs. So the result would be a self-reinforcing mechanism. The more building blocks bound, the more stable vesicles there would be for further binding of building blocks. And so the drive for complexity that you're referring to was initially a drive for stabilization of initial aggregates. So any changes that occurred that would increase stability, such as joining the building blocks together to form RNA, if those changes increased the stability of these initial aggregates, they would have been uh, preserved and the those sacs or early cells would have outcompeted others. So that's how you get the uh, drive toward complexity. Of course, there, you know, there are many steps along the road. Again, as I referred to the long road, eventually you needed the evolution of proteins or RNAs that extract energy from the environment, uh, that catalyze the synthesis of new building blocks. But we think all that's possible once you get this uh, initial population with RNA and protein going. And an important point uh, that one of my mentors, uh, David Deemer, likes to point out is uh, in a single uh, a teaspoon uh, full of water, uh, there can be millions of these little sacs, okay? And there are billions and billions of sacs uh, worth of water uh, in the ocean. So there you were alluding to this, there were many, many, many shots on goal to get combinations of these uh, uh, early form molecules that had uh, function. And again, the early functions would have just been for stability, growth, and division uh, of, of the sacs. But have you done like a Yuri Miller type experiment where you, you know, tried to make the conditions right and formed a bunch of these, you know, sacs in a in a tank or an environment and see if you can get them to take the next critical step? Right. Well, uh, so, yeah, that's sort of what we have done. We, we have done real experiments. We have published papers. Uh, and, yes, we, we have shown that uh, both RNA and protein building blocks will uh, stick to or, or bind to 
very uh, uh, simple, uh, what, what we call vesicles, membrane sacs, all synonyms. And uh, <clears throat> that work was published in two uh, prominent PNAS papers, um, one just last summer. So yes, that happens. And uh, which I think surprised a lot of people or, or you know, people hadn't actually asked the question. Um, and we showed that uh, when these uh, the building blocks bind, they do, in fact, stabilize the vessel against uh, high salt concentration or uh, precipitation by uh, divalent cations. So <clears throat> that's the experimental basis that, that we've established. Now, getting, getting further down the road to, uh, to your question, uh, indeed, where, where we're going, what, what we're trying to do now uh, is to show, first of all, that, that when the building blocks stick to these vesicles, uh, that actually does facilitate uh, their joining into RNA and protein. Uh, and if that's true, that would be a huge uh, advance in the field itself because it's still really uh, not well understood how the building blocks, either a protein or a RNA, uh, got strung together uh, in the early environment. So if our binding to our sex facilitates that phenomenon, that's a big step forward. Uh, and we're working hard to, to answer that question. Uh, then the, the second <clears throat> big question that, that we still have to address is if that happens, if the uh, SACs do facilitate the formation uh, of RNA and protein, uh, does uh, do short uh, stretches of RNA or protein uh, further stabilize the SACs? In other words, does adjoining uh, building blocks more effectively uh, stabilize the sacs or increase uh, the rate of uh, growth and division than unjoined uh, building blocks do. And if that's true, then you, you really have the beginning of Darwinian uh, evolution. You have RNAs and proteins that are uh, selected. And in this case, the initial uh, selection is for uh, again, stabilization and increasing growth and division of of the vesicles. But, but how do you go from again, even if you see stabilization at the uh, at the level of short, you know, spans of RNA, you still need to then make the next leap to replication, faithful replication of the same thing that that exists, you know, that, uh, that divides and, and replicates. How do you get to that step? Right. What would be and the driving force? What would be the driving force for that? I would think that would definitely have a hill of instability that it had to overcome to divide and then, you know, reach the new state. Right. So that transition to anything like what we have in modern biology is really a black box in, in anybody's concept. Uh, but, for example, one way you could get there is if you have even just a short stretch of uh, the protein building blocks, amino acids, I, I, most of our listeners uh, do, do have that, that much biology, but so a short stretch of amino acids strung together, if it catalyzed its own uh, formation, that that would be uh, the beginning. And that's not implausible, it may sound implausible at first, but actually people have shown that just two amino acids uh, joined together, uh, a dipeptide, uh, does uh, uh, have significant uh, catalytic activity. Uh, uh, a simple dipeptide can catalyze 
uh, the formation of sugars from simpler molecules. So again, this would be a rare dipeptide that could catalyze its own formation. But again, we're talking about billions and billions of uh, shots on goal. So that would be the way it, it could get going. But yes, you know, ultimately, you have to get this interaction between protein and RNA that you see today uh, going to uh, really generate uh, complexity that is preserved. As you say, you need a hereditary mechanism. So I sketched out, what I just sketched out is a very, very simple one. But how do you get to the complex uh, version that we see today? And we have to envision that once you've got proteins and RNAs, again, in the same place, which I think is a, is a critical issue most folks in the field don't address, you've got them in the same place, there's the opportunity for them to start interacting together and catalyzing each other's synthesis, which is, you know, exactly what happened uh, today. But what's the, uh, you know, what's the probability of the conditions being right? You know, from what I've read and seen, it's just low probabilities stacked upon lower probabilities stacked upon more and more and more. So it's a, it just seems so improbable that the conditions would be right and multiple factors would be right to uh, to create life. But I mean, do you see it that way or no? Or do you think it's highly probable? Uh, well, I said going back to the beginning, I'm skeptical whether it's happened elsewhere in the universe. Yeah, I think you need you need to get these essential building blocks uh, made. That's not considered a problem. Uh, you you actually find the building blocks uh, on meteorites. And a lot of work in the early days, going back to the 50s and 60s, showed that uh, they can be uh, made by abiotic processes plausibly occurred on the Earth. So the existence of the building blocks is not a mystery. There's the question of whether they would have been present in a high enough concentration to uh, go on to more complex forms. But that's where one of the strengths of our concept comes into play. Again, the sacs do form spontaneously. Uh, you need some significant concentration of the, the lipids, as you, as you said. Uh, but that's, that part's not mysterious. Uh, and then if our simple sacs, which would have formed spontaneously, bring together the other pieces, it begins to look more plausible. Um, one other uh, important point is that there's currently uh, a lot of interest in the idea that uh, all this took place in uh, pools of water on land uh, that would have been subject to drying and wetting cycles. And uh, uh, during the drying phase, that would have concentrated uh, all these components, uh, making, again, their, their joining into more uh, complex structure more plausible. I, I think that's a big advance over what has been a popular idea that all this happened in hydrothermal vents uh, in the ocean. We can discuss that if you want to. Uh, but I think that this idea of pools that could have dried down and concentrated uh, the uh, ingredients definitely increase uh, plausibility. But again, now you, you're adding another requirement, right? You, you need uh, land, which there's debate about that. Uh, when, you know, initially it's thought that uh, the earth was covered by ocean. And so when, uh, when did land actually appear and what's the likelihood of that having happened uh, at the right time? 
Yeah, that's true. When when is uh, you know current science? When what does it say? What time period did the the oceans recede or dry up enough where land appeared, or was land right. thrust upward through the ocean? Like, like what's the? Yeah, it's kind of weird. Right, it is, and and this is actually one of the really hot areas in the field where I think pe- people are the, the the geochemists and the the planetary scientists are um, really focusing on this now and trying to come up with more realistic assessments. Uh, but there, there's a current view that all this actually could have happened uh, about 4 billion years ago, somewhat earlier uh, than previous th- uh, previously thought. There was uh, a, another issue that uh, kind of dogged uh, an early start uh, for a long time was this idea of a, a late heavy bombardment of meteorites, uh, which you know, is yet another complicating issue. If that actually happened, it was thought that that would have sterilized your eliminated any type that had guns. Uh, so now the planetary scientists, uh, maybe there really wasn't a late heavy bombardment after all. Uh, and, and the configuration of all the pieces uh, could, could, have, could have been about, actually they're now they're saying 4.1 billion. Uh, so, so some people will laugh at precision. Uh, but that, yeah, that's that, that's the idea. Uh, that also connected with that is going back to your question about the Yuri Miller experiments. Uh, it's thought that you really needed uh, what's called a, a reducing uh, atmosphere for these uh, re- reactions to to form the building blocks uh, abiotically, and so essentially that means there would have had to have been some ammonia in the in the atmosphere. And uh, for a long time, that was thought to be plausible. Um, and, and, and people, to some extent, actually disregarded the Yuri Miller uh, results for a long time. They said, ah, they, you know, they used an unreal environment, uh, atmosphere. Okay. Um, Question yeah. here, do you, do you see uh, what, what I guess science was called natural selection acting upon non-living things or systems or just living things? Uh, what I'm proposing is a unit that, uh, yeah, you could say was not yet living. These simple sacks just bound uh, the building blocks. I think selection goes all the way back to those. And yeah, I think that that's part of the power of our concept because uh, you have to get selection going at an early stage, as, as you, uh, you're, you're inferring, to, to really progress. I mean, but, like even, even today, do you think natural selection acts only on living things or non-living things as well? Well, uh, natural selection, as we typically define it, you know, Darwinian selection, a population of entities um, with variants in their traits and with uh, hereditary components so they can pass their traits on to descendants. Uh, yeah, I don't see that in the non-living world today. But, of course, the world today has been taken over by uh, living uh, entities and uh, so again, we're th- we're proposing that this could have happened early on before there were there was any life to eat up such a thing. That, that well, the, the reason I ask is yeah. why why at some point in the past would there not be this force of natural selection, and then all of a sudden it would be there and acting upon this this early you know prototypical life arrangement. Why all of a sudden would this force then act upon that when it didn't before? When it doesn't now, on numbers. Right. Well, again, it doesn't now because uh, there aren't 
many or any free building blocks or you know lipids, free lipids, uh, sac-forming molecules floating around uh, to be acted upon by a selected because living creatures uh, devour them. The bacteria are very good at that. So that that's why it's not happening now. Yeah, that that question comes up sometimes the creationists will bring this up well why doesn't life start now then if it's from scratch if it ever could have and yeah that's the simple answer that uh the you you don't have these ingredients accumulating uh like they would have before there was life to eat them up but why is it why is a certain arrangement of molecules unique in such a way that now not i'm not saying it'll become life but why yeah why why would this arrangement of molecules that we call, let's say, RNA or lipids plus RNA plus protein, why that would then be subject to this new force of natural selection or replication or all these things? Like, why that arrangement? What, what's special about it that would all of a sudden enable a new force to act upon it? Well, uh, you know, you use the term all of a sudden. Uh, remember, this whole process probably took place over millions of years. We, we had, there was plenty of time. We're talking about a process that, that began three and a half to four billion years ago. And if it took uh, a few million uh, to get started, that, that wouldn't uh, be a lot surprising. But I, I think the, the critical point is that there was a time when these critical ingredients I'm describing uh, were present, brought in by meteorites and or formed by abiotic processes, they were able to build up a significant concentration because there wasn't anything like bacteria today. Uh, and these uh, initial structures formed spontaneously. That, again, is really the, the, the heart of our proposal. The, the idea that the sacs would have formed spontaneously is, uh, again, that, that's easy to show. I mean, you just take uh, lipids. This is kind of like uh, biochemistry 101, take most lipids and just mix them. Water, uh, they, they will form uh, enclosed uh, membrane structures. Uh, and the part we're bringing to the story uh, is that the additional components required actually have an affinity for these simple sacs. So that's, that was, what, what was, that's what was different. There was a time when these pieces accumulated uh, as that's not improbable uh, uh, once there was, you know, we're past the, the late heavy bombardment that ever existed. These pieces would have accumulated and uh, would have started interacting by these these natural affinities. But you so did, yeah, you had to have, a, sorry, but I mean, just, you know, to elaborate a bit, you, you, you needed the right conditions in terms of the uh, pH, temperature, uh, salts, again, couldn't have been too high. Uh, but, you know, all that's uh, reasonably probable. Well, I, I, today, I mean, life exists obviously everywhere. But, um, you know, when people ask you, why can't life start today? Well, okay, maybe the conditions aren't right for it to start. So the conditions are right, though, for life to perpetuate itself now that it's here, which is pretty interesting and unique. You know, so is that, is that what you, do you agree with that? Or like, you know, like, there's yeah, no well, life from yeah, non-life yeah, yeah. to Right, life, life. It, it had to evolve to the point. I mean, the initial idea, the, the idea is that initially, as I said, these ingredients uh, accumulated because there wasn't any to eat them up. But uh, yeah, at, at some point, these early uh, cells that I 
described would have uh, absorbed all the one all the, the pieces that were available so then uh, you had to go through a stage where uh, the, the cells evolved uh, a way to extract energy from the environment uh, to uh, make their own building blocks. So clearly that was a critical step in the process. But does this mean that there was one window, whether the window is 100 million years wide or, you know, however wide, in which life could start, but that window is now closed from that point? I mean, do you think life started only once in a given window and then never again? Well, I think uh, if, yeah, I, I think that's probably true because fairly quickly, once you've got these uh, little sacks uh, absorbing out, pulling out the, 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 the building blocks, uh, that, 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 that there, would, there wouldn't be the ingredients left for, for, for a second start. So if you wiped out life now, uh, of course, all of the existing, existing life would decay back to the building blocks. So yeah, it's an interesting question. Then at that point, uh, could it all get started again? Uh, sure, uh, in, in theory, if, uh, uh, you'd have a gigantic pile of these uh, uh, building blocks because uh, again, along the way, life uh, evolved a way to make more building blocks rather than just uh, relying on what it been brought down by me or made eye by eye. So uh, there would be a, a, a gigantic uh, pile of these pieces to start reforming. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it could start again. It's, that's an question. People like to say yeah. that it that you know if if you just take a cell and 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 bust it up, it's not going to reform. Uh, and, and they'll and maybe this is what you're holding it up as uh, as a real challenge to how it ever could have started to begin with. Uh, but yeah, give me a few million years and maybe it would. It would have to go through these early stages. No, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't form a, a full-blown modern cell, you know, eukaryotic cell with mitic and so forth. But well, why, like, if we look just at the past four billion years only, on Earth only, you think that life started only once, only one one small subset window of that time? Why wouldn't why wouldn't it have started again? Let's say three billion years ago, and then there's two parallel tracks of life. Right. Why couldn't that happen? You know why? You know even if there was a buildup of these proto, you know proto structures and all that, then all of a right. sudden, all right, life could start. But why never again? Yeah, uh, it, it it could have. Yeah, I mean that's a good question. There, there there's. Uh... Uh, you know, one view of the field is that before the the so-called uh, last universal common ancestor of all life on Earth, there uh, today, uh, there there could have been multiple starts. I I think the simple answer is that uh, the form that that we see today, this uh, you know really striking uh, and not at all obvious combination of lipid, RNA, and protein, once that got going, it would have just taken over. Uh, any other uh, forms that got started and and as I said used up all the the, bit, the bits the, the the ingredients that were available so uh, yeah it could it could have there could have been multiple stars early on before the last uh, Luca the last uh, comet but the, the the last universal common ancestor was uh, so efficient at uh, utilizing the what was available in the environment that uh, it, it it simply outcompeted uh, any 
any other forums that had started. Well, in this moment now, I mean, we could say that we've outcompeted everything else, but then again, there's, I mean, I don't even know how many bacteria in the world, how many viruses, yeah. how many fungi, you know, so right. we've outcompeted maybe in one way, but in another way, maybe we haven't. They're still here. There's still plenty of them. You're so, right. Well, yeah, they're, they're all our, our brothers and sisters, so to speak, in, in the sense that, uh, you know, we are all related. We're, we're, uh, we all descended from a common ancestor. Common ancestor. Our, our, our biochemistry uh, and molecular biology is incredibly similar to bacteria and so forth. So, yeah, there, there's competition among these forms of life, but, you know, it's really one one form of life. Yeah, I, I think it, if, if we keep going the way we, we are, uh, you know, climate change, uh, humans uh, may wipe out themselves, and, and so then the bacteria will be left and they'll take over. But but I wouldn't view that as you know, a new start to life, as I said, bacteria. Yeah, I mean, not only have we not outcompeted them, but they are us. You know, we're, yeah, we're all yeah, whole, yeah. Whole and yeah, and, you know, you, you could have a whole podcast on that you have about how, you know, more and more in the last, whatever, 10 years, we're, we're appreciating to what extent we are actually composed of that. So what, uh, I guess, you know, last question or two, what, what is the future of life, or is that not a concern of yours? I mean, you just want to figure out the, the origin, which is plenty good enough. But yeah, <laughs> you have thoughts on the, on the future of it? Yeah, that's that's uh, keeping us busy. Yeah, you know, I hadn't actually uh, thought that much about it. I, I I think it really does. Well, we we know that eventually the Earth, of course, end, and so. I guess at that point, if there isn't life elsewhere in the end, that would be the end of it. Uh, what happens between now and then? Well, uh, the geneticists say that humans are actually still evolving. So, and then of course, there's a lot of buzz about our interaction with artificial intelligence and so forth. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will say that's where we're headed to, to more of a, uh, a mix of machine and, and biological life, but I'll, I'll have to leave that to the technologist uh, futurists. It's, it's a bit beyond my pay grade. Well, very good. Well, Roy, what's the best way for people to find out more about what you're working on? Uh, yeah, uh, the, my, my co-investigator is Sarah Keller, and she maintains our website at the University of Washington. So uh, that would be, the, uh, you know, or or just Google e either her or me. We, we have these uh, published papers that, that people could get started. Well, very good. Roy, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Richard. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.